Welcome to the Transform Your Wealth and Health podcast, where experts in wealth, health, and fitness help transform your life. Here's your host, Andy Arder. He's a three times Olympian, three times Norseca champion. He's a podcaster just like myself and an Olympic gold medalist. Today's guest is Ryan Miller. Ryan, how are we doing? Doing very well, Andy. It's great to be here. Great to be with everyone. Looking forward to the conversation. Oh, thanks for being on the show, Ryan. It's not every day that we have an Olympic gold medalist on. And you're a volleyball champion. And I know you're a big guy. You're nearly six foot seven, aren't you? Around about that size? Yeah, I'm six foot eight. So six foot yeah. eight. Good God. You, you know, yeah. we're the same size at the moment, though. And I'm only yeah, about five. Eight. <laughs> it looks that way on the internet. <laughs> Everybody's the same height on the internet, right? I'm loving this internet. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, Ryan, you've had an incredible journey. Things have been really successful for you. But I want you to take us back a little bit further and tell us about your family life and what you was doing before you got into volleyball. Yeah, so um, I grew up in a small town in Southern California. And Southern California in the U.S. is, I mean, it's kind of like the mecca of volleyball. So it's where the hotbed of volleyball really originated. It's still relatively popular in, in Southern California. Um, but when I grew up, I, I was the youngest of three older brothers. And so I was just kind of the punching bag for a little while uh, before I got my growth spurt, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, I originally grew up liking basketball a lot more. I didn't really know anything about volleyball. Uh, I was much more into basketball until my older brother, John, who started playing volleyball and got into it, he really liked it. And he decided that he needed his little brother to start playing so that he could have someone to beat up on. And so <laughs> that's when I started playing volleyball. I was about, uh, I was probably about 11 years old when I first started playing and, and just fell in love with it pretty quick. So. So, so how many of you are there in the family? So we've got, I've got um, three older brothers. My, my oldest brother actually died in a car accident oh. tragically when I was about 10 years old. So um, that, that was rough, obviously, on our family. I've got two older brothers now. Um, funny enough, I've got three older brothers, right? And then my oldest brother now has four boys. My other brother has three boys, and I have three boys. So we have zero girls in our family. And zero. so uh, I don't think. It's just the way it worked out. I don't. Yeah. There's a lot of boys, but no girls. So you can have your own volleyball team, but it'd have to be a male one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we could easily have our own team. They're big kids, too, because, I mean, I'm six foot eight. My other brothers are both right around six, three, four. So they're not, they're not small guys, and their kids aren't small either. So. Okay, so, so you answered one of my questions there. I mean, what made you get into volleyball uh, in particular? Because, of course, you know, big guy like yourself, you could have done basketball uh, or various other sports, but your brothers bullied you into it. So you had to go and do it. That's an obvious one, I suppose. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, hang on a minute. You started getting serious with this. What happened with your brothers? Did they fall away and you kept going? Um, yeah, a little bit. There became a point kind of in my second year of high school when I started to realize that, you know, I was a lot better than everybody else <laughs> and that this was something that could, could potentially be something I wanted to focus on later on in life. And, and as I continued on in high school and then went on to university and played in the university system in the U.S. And, and I started developing and honing my skills a little bit more, I was like, oh, okay. So 
then I start learning about how to make volleyball, how to become a professional athlete and actually make a living doing it. And uh, I, I went over and played in Europe for, for, I played professional volleyball for 12 years and uh, lived in Italy for a long time and, and lived in uh, Istanbul, Turkey for, for a few years and then lived in Poland for a year, lived in Russia. Wow. So I've, I've been all over the world uh, being able to, to actually live and play professionally uh, along with all of the Olympic competition as well. Wow, that's incredible. So yeah. uh, you, you went to three Olympics. I've got to ask you now, what was your favorite Olympics and why? Well, <laughs> I get that question a lot, but it's always a biased answer because we only no, won one gold. And it was, no, no, you're not allowed to say, to say one, the right? one you won gold in. Come on, Ryan, that's a cop-out. <laughs> but, but if you really think about it, when we won gold was in Beijing in 2008, and if anyone remembers the Beijing Olympics in 2008, it was kind of like China's coming out party to the rest of the yeah. world. I mean, they spent billions and billions of dollars yes. on that Olympics. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was really well done, very well structured, really well run. Um, from an athlete's perspective, it was, it was top notch. Um, the village was beautiful. The venues were beautiful. The people were super helpful. Um, it, was, it was really well done. That's not taking away anything from Athens, which was my second Olympic Games in 2004, which was fantastic. It was the 100-year anniversary of the modern games, and it was in Athens, which was, which was kind of exciting. Um, and then 2000 was my first Olympics in Sydney, Australia. And that's got a special place in my heart as well because it was yeah. my first Olympics, first experience, and, uh, and, and a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, after London, London had to come after Beijing. And the first thing that people said was, look, don't think this is going to be a similar occasion to the Beijing Olympics because they just spent yeah. untold money <laughs> that we just have not got. But it was quirky and it was their version of it and people liked it. I mean, it was quite unpopular at one point in the UK. And then once they got into it and got going, everybody loved it. And I loved it as well because I was working in London at the time. I could get around really easily. And I disappeared for the first week of the Olympics. I thought, London's going to be awful. I'm going to go to Spain. So I went to Spain and we was out there on holiday for a week. Come back the second week. Did I get a shock? It was really great, you know, and the atmosphere was yeah. fantastic. So, you know, I know a little bit. We actually had, near to where I live, we had the canoeing. So we got a little bit of an Olympic feel in 2012 ourselves because we was right in the area. But, um, of course, you really got the feel for it because you was in the Olympic villages. But um, yeah. what, did, what did the people that you know say about the London Olympics? Did they, they say it was a good Olympics? You know, what's interesting about the London Games, so, you know, I was on the back, the tail end of my career, and I was actually an Olympic alternate for London. Um, I, I was just, I just missed going, mostly because I, I had a fairly significant ankle injury um, a little bit before the games that I hadn't fully recovered. And, you know, when you're a little older, your body doesn't recover quite as quickly as it did when you're in your twenties. And so, yeah. um, you know, I thought I could maybe do it, but you know, we had some young new talent coming up in the program and, and I ended up being an alternate for those games. And, um, it was, what's interesting is that when that happened, when that, when, when the coaching staff decided that I was just going to be an alternate, I wasn't going to be going to the games. I kind of, took it as writing on the wall. It was time to move on. It was time to, 
I mean, I'd had an almost 15 year international career. Like I yeah. told you, I, I mean, I played professionally for all those years. My body was like, all right, it's time to, it's time to do something different. But, um, you know, we went into those games as defending Olympic champions. So there was some expectations uh, around how well we would do. We had a fairly good team. A lot of the guys were returning. Um, but uh, they didn't perform probably as well as they probably should have. And we ended up losing in the first round of the medal, medal round. I think they ended up taking tied for seventh or tied for fifth or something like that. Um, and got it cut off a little early. But, uh, yeah, I, I heard nothing but good things about the games as well. I, of course, I watched them on TV. I was rooting for the team, but um, didn't get to participate in it myself. I, I'd mm -hmm. experienced it three times, and I, I feel fine about that. That's fair enough. I mean, obviously, it is a team game, um, but you must have something about you in particular to do uh, three, almost four lots of Olympics. That's over a long period of time. You had to be at the top. How did you maintain that Olympian spirit and will to win for such a long period of time? Man, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I host a podcast as well called Unlocking Excellence. And, and yes. the reason why I started the podcast was almost because of that question. I, I thought, I wonder if people would be interested to understand what sets some people apart from other people or, or, or is there anything even? Like why can some people do something that other people can't? Is there a link? Is there something that that other person has that the other person doesn't? Um, I interviewed actually a, a guy named Jamie Sterling on my show who is a world champion big wave surfer. So he surfs mm -hmm. 60, 70 foot waves. And I wanted to ask him, wow. <laughs> can, can anybody do what you do? Like let's for instance, let's say I'm, a, I'm younger and I commit myself to go try to be a big wave world champion. Like can I do it? If I dedicate myself to it, can I do it? Or is there something about you that makes that particular profession um, better for you? Or, or is there something about you? And, and I think it, it comes down to a lot of the token answers that you would probably hear, which is, you know, dedication, desire, passion. Um, I, I told Jamie that I did the math once because I was curious. You know, there's the outliers. I don't know if you've read the book from Malcolm Gladwell where he talks about the 10,000 hours to develop yeah. an expertise. Yeah. So I actually did the numbers on me and I took from a high level of volleyball how much time I actually have played from practice, um, you know, strength conditioning, agility work, jump training, plyometrics, you know, all the, all the amount of time that I spent actually in playing the game of volleyball. And it actually turned out to be about 40,000 hours, which I did the math on and it's almost four and a half years straight 24 7 of just playing volleyball for four and a half years that's incredible and, and so i guess the answer to your question is it just requires people an ability to go through the grind of what it would take to do that now not everyone is capable of that grind because it is a no. grind I mean, there were times where I would have to wake up in the morning and you're going, okay, here we go again. It's, we're doing practice. I got to do the same thing. I got to put on my shoes. I got to beat my body up. And yeah. then I got to try to recover because the next day I got to do the same thing again. Ryan, I absolutely 100% get it. I mean, I've been doing similar work for 37 years and there's a lot of sales involved. And one of the things that I try and 
talk to people about and I bring it up. It's you know, something I can help other people with just like you can with the sport and the, the way you put your body through it. You're going to have to put your mind through it just as much. And I call it the slog. And it's what I call it is slog for is because we start losing our gumption, you know, like an acronym. Because ultimately, over a period of time, if you get beat up enough, plenty of people will quit. Most people quit. Right. The guys like you that don't quit are the ones we need to get in the brain of and find out why you don't quit. Is it just because you're right. stupid? I don't believe that. But it could be some people are just too stupid to stop. They don't normally get to the top, of course. But people like yourself that are not stupid, they know what they're doing, they're performing at a high level. How do you keep it going? That was that was really the ultimate part of my question. And you, you know, you answered it well. But the other part of it, of course, was someone had to pay you for that length of time. So, you know, I notice you, you jump from country to country. Sometimes you outstay your welcome or it doesn't quite work out for you. Um, you've got to move on and, and, and make it work somewhere else. Did you find that the, the culture was completely different in the various countries that you went to? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was actually one of the, one of the, the better parts of being able to go and live in different places is to experience the different cultures. Um, you know, you know, living in Europe and being in the UK, Italy's got a different culture than Poland and, and Poland's got a different culture than Turkey and Turkey's got a different culture than Russia. And so anytime that I would go to these different countries, I would need to be adaptable and be able to adjust and do the things that I needed to do to ensure that I can have a, a good lifestyle of living when I was there. Because, you know, you don't go there just to go for vacation. You go to Italy and you live. I lived in Italy for seven years. And so I had to yeah. learn the language and, and I had to adjust to the way they do they would do things. And there were many years when I would actually be in Europe even longer than I was even in the U.S. And so um, it, it was just a part of the process. Um, you, you know, we, we make, as a professional volleyball player, you make the majority of your money playing in, in the professional leagues in Europe. Much like you see with um, European basketball stars that would come play in the NBA. Yeah. They, come and, they come to America not because they want to come live in America. They, they miss their home and their family. They come here to make a living while they can continue to make a living. And so um, we don't have a professional volleyball league in the United States. And so all of the best oh. indoor volleyball players have to go play in Europe. Oh, I wasn't aware of that at all. I, I, you know, I was presuming it was the other way around. I, I learned something there, that's for sure. So we, we touched on it earlier. And something that we talk about on my show is mental health. Because I don't believe that our health within our bodies is, is related to 100% of our body and our makeup, I believe it's a lot to do with our mental health. So how, how important do you believe mental health is to an elite athlete? You know, I, I, think, I think you hit it on the head before when you talked about what it really takes to get to a certain level and how it's oftentimes even more about the mental state than it is the mm. physical. Um, because it's the mental state that really drives the physical. Because it, it's it's yeah. the mind that pushes the body. It's not the body that pushes the mind. And so your ability to continue to cultivate your own mental health is is probably 75 to 90% of an ability to achieve a level of success that you probably want. It's the ability to push through difficult times. It's the ability to push through um, injury, which is a part of being in athletics. It's the ability to push through times of failure. 
Um, and so, you know, we had, we had resources available to us to, to help us in regards to our own mental conditioning. Um, we, when we played on the Olympic teams, we had um, sleep doctors that would work with our team. We had nutritionists that would work with our team. Um, people that were designated to ensure that from a mental standpoint, we were prepared to do what needed to be done physically in order to, to produce the types of outcomes and results that we needed to. And so what I would say there is it often takes support in order to achieve your mental capacity, the goals and, and, and the success that you can in your mind, you oftentimes need to rely on others to help you do that because look, I'm not an expert in everything. And, and I would be, I would be foolish not to rely on people that are experts in areas that can actually help me from a mental standpoint. Yeah, sure. I mean, we had a world champion boxer on the show and he said that he believed that I think it was 80% of fights were lost outside of the ring before they've even got in the ring. 80% of the time the fight was lost. For the person that lost the fight, of course, you know, which is incredible when you think it's that important, the stuff that happens outside of the ring compared to the actual, I mean, how long would they box for? Ten three-minute rounds, I suppose, for most fights. So that they've got half an hour right. in the ring, but that half an hour in the ring getting punched has got less to do with the time outside of the ring, which was incredible. And he's a world champion, so I'm, I'm going to take his, his advice on that, you know? Yeah, you know, to... To further along with that, I'll tell you a really quick example. Um, so in the work that I do now, I'm a, I'm a global consultant. We do consulting work. We work with organizations on how to effectively manage their, their organizational culture. Yeah, tell that, us That's about the, that. the emphasis on our work. And yeah, I was just going to tell you that one thing that I, that I saw that really hit me hard was a quote from um, some, some military folks. And the quote was, to the occasion. You know, you normally hear people say, wow, that person really rose to the occasion or they rose to the occasion. Th this, this high level leader was saying, no, in times of pressure, we don't rise to the occasion. We sink to our level of training and preparation. And that's why we train so hard that under times of pressure, we don't need to rise to the occasion. We just need to sink to our level of where we are now. And so in Beijing, something really interesting happened um, tragic, actually, the Olympic Games. Um, you might remember this because it was an international story. Our head coach's mother-in-law and father-in-law and his wife went out sightseeing in Beijing, and they went to a popular tourist attraction called the Drum Tower. And uh, at the Drum Tower, you go into an elevator, it takes you up to the top, and you kind of there's a plateau where you look over the city. And they exited the elevator and a, a crazy Chinese local man jumped out of the shadows and attacked them and stabbed his father-in-law to death. He murdered him on the scene, wow. stabbed his mother-in-law, um, stabbed their tour guide. Luckily enough, his wife was far enough away that she was uninjured and then proceeded to jump off the tower and committed suicide. So, so this happened two days before our first match. The, the day before the opening ceremony was to start. And so you know, we're, we're kind of left thinking to ourselves, well, you know, there goes our head coach isn't going to be with us because he's got to take care of his family and take care of things that are much larger than, than volleyball right now. Yeah. And so we were left to really play our initial matches, just us. There was no, no, no leadership guidance that he could give us because he wasn't there. 
Um, and when I think back on that story, it, it takes me back to that quote, which is mm -hmm. under times of pressure, under times of tragedy, you don't rise to the, we didn't rise to the occasion. We simply sank to the level of our preparation and went out and executed. And, and, and we, we ended up being successful. Yeah, sure. So I, I, I mean, that's incredible. I've never heard of that story. I didn't know about that, by the way. But like you say, you go down to your base level and what's there is what you produced. And uh, well, you guys were that's the right. champs. So, you know, you already had it in you already. So well done to you. That's way. right. To so, me, it makes me think of what you're saying with the boxing, right? Yeah, it's eighty yeah. percent is already lost before the match if you're not prepared. The pe the person that wins typically is the one that has prepared better and prepared more strategically. Yeah. And when the time came, they went out and executed and were successful. Mm, yeah, definitely. That guy was a guy called Billy Schwer, and Billy's a real character, by the way. And um, you know, mentally, he was tough. You know, he lost. He lost. He fought for the world title. Uh, on multiple occasions where he lost and then he won it on his fourth attempt so you know he could oh, wow. give up at any one of those other times there was like controversy between some of the fights that he had i know there's a lot of controversy in boxing anyway but yeah you know this this guy come through it all and, he, and he's known now for the kind of you know get back up again get back up again type of uh character and he does like yourself keynote speeches and he, uh, he helps other people to rally again within their lives because, you know, everyone gets setbacks. And uh, he had a fair few. After he finished his career, he suffered from depression and other stuff like that. He went bankrupt. Right. He had all sorts of other issues. But once again, he's back again. You know, he's on his top form again, and he's a real, he's a real character. So, so t tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about the stuff you're doing after, after your career. Yeah, so once I retired, I was in a little bit of limbo, just trying to figure out what the next chapter of my life was going to look like and mm. um, bumped into a good friend of mine who introduced me to the consulting firm that, I'm, that I work at now. I've been working for the firm for almost eight years now. Our, our, the, the company name is Partners in Leadership. Um, again, our, our main focus is on helping organizations around the world more effectively manage their culture, more effectively develop their leaders their managers, their supervisors, and their individual contributors. Um, we, we tend to marry the notions of culture management and, and producing and creating greater accountability within organizations and help organizations create what we call a culture of accountability, which is what we would say and argue is the most effective culture that an organization can create. Um, organizations that demonstrate high levels of accountability in their cultures tend to produce game-changing results. And so mm -hmm. we help organizations um, create and um, integrate and sustain those types of cultures. Mm -hmm. I was talking to uh, somebody recently, uh, I won't name which company, but quite a well-known company. And um, they were saying to me pretty much the same kind of stuff. You know, their company has been asking them to do lots of different things but they said the culture just doesn't exist within their company, they felt at least, to, um, to produce the kind of results that they wanted. They said, we're not, we're not ready. You know, all the guys within, the, within that company, and it's a well-known one as well, um, are being asked to produce over and above they have been in the past, as companies obviously do want them to. But they right. said, look, we're, we're just not ready for this culture of high achieving. You know, we're struggling, we're, we're having one step forward and two steps back and things like that. Um, so how do you get companies around that kind of thing where they're not quite ready? Um, 
you know, the reason why we put such a heavy emphasis on leadership development is because culture, whether fair or not, doesn't really matter because it's a fact. Culture always reflects leadership. Yeah. And so being able to effectively develop the types of leadership that we need in an organization to produce the desired culture is, is a huge part of our process. Without getting the right leaders on board, particularly at the top of the organization, um, the, the process either slows down to a crawl, which a lot of organizations don't have the luxury of time for change because in today's day and age, change is happening so rapidly. And good heavens, nowadays, with everything that's going on right now, disruption is everywhere. Every industry is, is disrupted right now. I mean, you look at the airline industry, the cruise industry, the hotel, the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry. I mean, that those just couple of things make up a large portion of the global economy. Mm. And with what's going on right now, it's you're really we're really promoting the need for leaders to step up and lead in a different way, um, encourage, inspire, motivate in different ways, so that their people one don't get discouraged, two don't check out or disengage, and three continue to to find potentially even opportunity. In, in, in disruption and crisis because, you know, for instance, with our organization, I mean, we're, we're having a total and complete strategic change shift. Uh, our, our strategy has gone from one place to another just based on our ability to continue to try to innovate and deliver for our clients because typically we spent 30 years of our, of our existence as a firm doing all of our work on site with leaders in person yeah. And now we're literally flipping the script 180 degrees and everything is being done virtually like we're doing here on Zoom, yeah. live online. We're taking all of our consulting work and doing everything live online or virtually. Mm. Is your company full of high achievers, would you say, Ryan? Yeah, we've got a dynamic uh, workforce, particularly in what we call our field, which are all of our senior consultants very impressive people, very impressive backgrounds. You know, I was on with, a, I was interviewing another CEO friend of mine and, and she was talking about how early on in her career, she suffered from what she called the imposter syndrome because she didn't have a sales background. She didn't have an MBA. She didn't go to business school yet here. She's leading this, you know, hundred, five hundred billion dollar business and she's always in the back of her mind going, you know, when are people going to figure me out that I'm not supposed to be doing this because I'm not the <laughs> yeah. right person? But, but the, the fact was she was the right person. She just needed to get her, herself into a better uh, mindset around what she was doing. I kind of found myself in that framework as well because when I first came on to the, to the firm, I had no sales background. I had no facilitation presentation background. I had no speaking background. I, it was... You know, I, I felt like, what am I doing here? This isn't, <laughs> I must be fooling a lot of people for them to think that I could do this job. But it wasn't until I got my mind set in the place of, oh no, I'm supposed to be here. I'm creating value. I'm adding value to the company, to our clients. And so this is where I'm supposed to be. No, most definitely. I mean, people look up to people like yourself. I mean, you've been a high achiever, so why wouldn't they? You've also got stories to tell. And people relate to stories. You know, it's a, it's a matter yeah. of sometimes of you get up and do one speech and inspire someone and somebody else could spend six months working alongside them and, and achieve nothing. And um, right. 
you know, there's inspirational people out there. I mean, if you look at some of the, the characters um, in history and in this country, they go back and they talk about Winston Churchill, where Churchill, he galvanized yeah. the nation because of his, his speeches. You know, obviously, communication wasn't quite what it is now. And me and you can talk across a continent here, for, for God's sake, you know. But, um, <laughs> you know, here we are uh, with a free product on Zoom. We're talking across a, 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 an ocean. And um, right. he obviously had things slightly differently, but the words that he said are still being quoted nowadays, you know, and it's, in, it's incredible the way that he, he galvanized the nation and we were never going to give in with the fight against Nazi Germany. You know, this was the, the, the spirit that the, the UK had. We was not going to give in. And other people have obviously done it uh, in their countries, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela and Gandhi and all sorts of other people. And it's words sometimes that just move our hearts and then our brains. And once our hearts are engaged and our brains are engaged, that's it. You know, the game's over. You might as well, you right. might as well give in. And, and, I, and I find with people that if you can inspire someone, actions, of course, you know, that, that helps. But motivational words can sometimes do just as well. Yeah, totally agree. It's a, it, I love that part of my job because my story is unique. Look, we have other guys in our firms that are, they have PhDs, they've got MBAs, they've gone, you know, Georgetown Law, we've got law, law professors, we've got all these really smart people, but we don't have people that have my particular story. Yeah. And for, for a lot of your listeners, everybody's got a unique story. Mm. It's just being able to craft that story to make it compelling in order to move someone in a direction that you need them to go. I mean, that's yeah. really true leadership, right? Is the ability mm. to facilitate movement in somebody in their desired direction and still make them feel good about it. Yeah. And, um, and so we, we feel like we, we've, we put together a nice, a, a good process. We've got good content and the work that we do with organizations is very rewarding because we see the movement that happens within these organizations when they implement the right way. Mm -hmm. So just changing things slightly, Ryan, are you keeping fit nowadays? Yeah, so that's a good question too, especially nowadays <laughs> because we're all quarantined really, right? Yeah. Uh, my gym is closed. My wife and I are gym rats. We, we typically, we always look forward to waking up, going to the gym. We had a routine and then when we got the notification that the gym was closing, we're like, oh no. Um, so now we have to take all of, our, all of our fitness work down into our basement. Uh, we've got like a stationary, like a Peloton bike down there. And we're typically, we're, she and I are both um, big road bikers. She got me kind of in it. Um, and so we, when the weather gets a little warmer, we'll take to the road and we'll go do some road. But she does like 200 plus mile rides a day. So she's, she's pretty hardcore. I'm slowly trying to catch up to her. Um, but uh, we're excited about it getting warm here so that we can get back out on the road. Uh, and uh, and exercise that way, but it, it is still a big part of, of who I am. I like staying fit. Um, I'll play volleyball as much as I can, even though I've probably played enough for a few lifetimes. I, I still really enjoy the game. I, I enjoy being with friends and playing it. Um, I'll play in tournaments every once in a while just to have fun and just recreationally. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. Well, you do a little bit more than I do anyway, but uh, I, tr I try and keep fit, but the body's falling apart slowly, Ryan. So uh, not that it was ever at an elite level like you, but <laughs> I, I just do what I do and uh, try and do a little bit towards keeping fit. So uh, 
sometimes I'm better than others. So one of the things that you touched on earlier, we're all like that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the things you touched on earlier was that, and you just mentioned it then pretty much as well. You know, the fact uh, that you got yourself in a routine and the thing that I've not been very good at over the years in particular is routines. So I'm not great at routines. I'm not great at repetition with my, my sport and my fitness. Uh, and I've not been great with things like um, uh, food and nutrition and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm consciously, I talk about it on the podcast, I'm consciously trying to do a little bit better. But what, what I can say is, I mean, I also look at uh, things sometimes holistically and our mental health, as we talked about earlier, plus our physical health. But we've also got internal stuff that we can't see. You know, things like um, our feelings and our heart, which, are, you know, um, affects um, things like hair loss. I mean, I, we had a guy when I was at school once upon a time at 15 years of age, all his hair fell out overnight, you know, oh alopecia. So at 15 years of age, his hair fell out because he was worried about something. So it's an internal thing that you're not going to see, but it really affected his health. So do you have within your organization people that deal with, um, let's say holistic health for the companies that you help. Yeah, it's it's not a part of our our core curriculum of what we do specifically, um, but you know I think you could easily connect the work that we do to health, uh, mental health, because when when you can impact an organization's culture, you're trying to impact it for good. Right. And so if somebody yeah. is going into work feeling better about the work that they're doing, I mean, you know, as much as everybody else, you just, you, you just tend to feel better. You're yeah. more, you're more motivated. You're, you're, you're more likely to work harder or want to work hard. Um, you particularly, you've got leaders that are, that are actively promoting their own development, which then trickles down to the people that they lead, which hopefully trickles down to the people that they lead. And so the reason why we feel like culture is such an important thing to focus on in organizations is because it touches everything within a business. Mm. The, 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 the culture is the business. And we, we would even argue that the, it's actually your organizational culture, which is producing your organizational outcomes because culture is all encompassing. It's, it's whole, that impacts the culture. Anytime a leader makes a decision, that impacts the culture. And so if we can impact the culture for good and make it a better place to be, to be employed, just think of, just think of the, the impact that has on people's overall wealth because, I mean, health, because we spend so much time at work, particularly, I mean, in a large portion of our lives, we spend so much time at work. You can imagine what it does to your mental well-being when the work you're doing is not fulfilling. It's, it's, it's a place you don't want to be at versus an organization that is fulfilling and it is an organization you enjoy the people you work with you enjoy your manager and it's a place you're invested in and that's our mission in regards to what we're trying to do and help organizations um, create better places to work for their people and also produce um, results for their customers yeah sure would you would you say it's like an organizational well-being so to speak you know, people talk about culture well-being. Is. It, it really is because yeah. culture impacts your well-being uh, to a great degree. Um, and so I, I would absolutely connect the dots on those two, even though we don't talk about well-being or mental health specifically in our curriculum. Mm. I, I can easily make it tie to what the work that we're doing and actually how it impacts the, the well-being and mental health of, of 
of workers, people that are employed. Good to hear you say that. So on your podcast, by the way, what, what kind of stuff do you talk about? I've just started listening, so I'm a little bit behind the curve on this, but what kind of stuff do you um, generally talk about? Yeah, you know, the title is Unlocking Excellence, and, and it, the reason why I made the, the topic so broad is because I'd like to take it a lot of different places. Because you can unlock excellence in regards to leadership. You can unlock excellence in regards to ownership. You can unlock excellence in regards to fitness and health, um, education. And I'd like to touch on all of those things over the life of the podcast. Um, I originally started it just simply as a kind of a side hobby. I enjoy talking. I I enjoy sharing some perspectives that I had. I enjoy sharing my story. And hopefully it inspires people to to you know try things differently maybe go out on a limb think outside the box Um, it's it's really just a labor of love in regards to getting people to potentially think differently around how they can unlock their own excellence either in themselves uh, in their work maybe they lead a small team there might be something that they can learn from there Uh, maybe maybe you're I mean I've got CEOs that listen to the podcasts that are that are thinking okay so how can I use some of these things to impact the entirety of our organization yeah or you know maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad and you want to figure out how to be a better parent there's some there's some things that are going to be in there around that as well Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a lot of fun I enjoy the people we talk to I enjoy sharing my thoughts and um, it's been a good learning curve learning journey for me too to kind of understand how to put together a podcast, how to produce it, what's the curric- what's the content that I want to share. Um, and it's been, it's been a great journey for me, a learning journey for me. Well, sure, sure thing, Ryan. I mean, I'm enjoying the podcast so far. I'm a little bit, like I say, behind, so I'm going to catch up over the weekend and I'll, I'll know a little bit more about uh, the kind of stuff that you're into. But uh, you've got a new fan for the podcast. How can anybody else who wants to see what you do and know more about you contact you yeah so um feel free to go to my website it's really easy ryan millar m-i-l-l-a-r and then the number nine.com and then um all the social media platforms on instagram it's uh, at ryan millar nine and then uh at uh, on twitter it's p-i-l ryan millar all together and then linkedin is probably where i'm the most active um, particularly around the content that I'm putting out. And so um, just search for me on, on LinkedIn and uh, send me a, a, a connection request. I'd love to connect with everybody out there and uh, feel free to, to direct message me there. Um, and then, you know, if you've got direct questions, feel free to email me. My email is ryan at ryanmillar9.com. And uh, I can get a, be, a, be uh, contacted through that medium as well. Brilliant. Ryan, listen, thanks very much for doing the show. Uh, I've really enjoyed it, and I look forward to more of your podcast too. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Andy. Thank you. Thank you. I hope this podcast gives you inspiration. And if you want to contact me, I'm Andy Arter, and it's transformyourwealthandhealth at gmail.com. 